sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. We have a real heartwarming kind of traumatic story to tell today. It's the story of a little boy who's an American citizen who is dead because of our immigration policy, because he was unable to come to the United States and get treatment in time uh, based on changes, recent changes in the law. Our guest today is my friend and colleague, civil rights attorney, Saad Swalem, who works with the Council on American-Islamic Relations in Northern California. Saad, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thanks for having me, Alan. Appreciate it. So there's a little boy named Abdullah who passed away, and his mother almost didn't get to even see him before he died. But what went wrong here? What was the problem? The problem here was when Donald Trump imposed the Muslim ban or the travel ban, um, Yemen is part of that ban. So because Abdullah's mother, even though Abdullah himself was a U.S. citizen and his father was a U.S. citizen, because his mother was not, and she's from Yemen, a Yemeni national, she was not able to come here to the United States um, due to the ban. She was prevented from doing so. Um, so, you know, the family faced a difficult decision between having Abdullah separated from his mother as a young toddler or trying to wait to see if they can obtain a waiver so she could enter and the family could stay together. So they waited as long as they could before Abdullah eventually had to come here alone with his father separated from his mother. So you talk about a waiver. I mean, that sounds like there is a system in place that is set up for situations just like this where you know, we know that there are people who are safe to have come into this country. They have ties. They have family. In this case, the mother, although herself not an American citizen, her husband was a citizen. Her son was a citizen. I mean, she was a pretty safe bet as far as, uh, you know, letting her come. But And so there's a system that's set up for these waivers to be granted. Tell us about this waiver system. So there's a waiver process. Um, there's three criteria. One, that denying entry would cause an undue hardship. Entry wouldn't pose any national security threat and that it would be in the national interest. So this case really exposes that this waiver process is really a sham. It's a fraud process. It's not a real process because the State Department's directive specifically says that an undue hardship is a situation where someone can't wait to come. They can't wait to be granted a waiver later. They need it now. It's urgent. Um, and obviously, in a case like this, where a mother was separated from her young two-year-old son who was literally dying, um, it couldn't be more urgent than that. Um, so this case really exposed the, the waiver process as something that was just thrown into the Muslim ban to pass judicial scrutiny, because previous iterations of the ban were actually struck down at, because they had a separate waiver process, a different one that, that, they, that the judges weren't satisfied with. So this was thrown in, you know, really to pass judicial scrutiny so the court can say, okay, this ban is legal. But we can see, in fact, that it's not actually being implemented. Um, the mother waited for over a year for a waiver, and she did not get one until, you know, they came to us. And it became this, you know, worldwide story, and it became this huge outcry 
um, before they finally granted her the waiver. So you fought this battle in the press rather than the courts? So it was a two-pronged attack. We we worked with an immigration attorney um, based out of D.C., and we filed a lawsuit you know, to have them speed up and, and basically ask the court to force the government to make a decision on her waiver application. And then on the other side of it, you know, we had a very massive social media campaign that we really think embarrassed the administration because many Americans were just shocked to see that, you know, this young American boy was being forced to die without his mother, you know. So a few things we went with, and we were really grateful that Shema was eventually able to come see Abdullah in his last week of life. Well, you know, this is kind of an old trick. I was exposed to it right out of law school and at the risk of giving away just how ancient I really am. Back in the 80s, what we found was that when, in that case, a Republican administration came into power, their approach to kind of rolling back the anti-poverty programs that they felt were excessive, you know, of the 60s and 70s, was to basically make it as difficult as possible for people to comply. And they would routinely cut people out of their benefits and make them reapply and that sort of thing. And so the very process of qualifying and being approved for something was made as difficult as possible. So this is kind of an old strategy. And what I hear you saying is, you know, this administration has applied this strategy to a waiver process that, you know, it may be perfectly okay on paper, but they're not actually practicing it. Exactly. Yeah. And this case really highlights that because, you know, they had the family had contacted the embassy over 28 times um, that they had sent doctors sending letters saying, hey, you know, we really need to get the mother here. The kid's really close. He's essentially on his deathbed on life support. Um, and all of those, you know, calls were ignored. It wasn't until we had this massive response really from the American people where they raised their voices, contacted elected officials, really started pressuring um, the Department of State. It wasn't until then that they actually implemented their own waiver process. I mean, just like you said, it's something on paper um, that we're not actually seeing, you know, any results from. So it's definitely similar to what you're mentioning. Um, and, you know, so our hope is this case is going to really shed light on the fact that there are a lot of Yemeni families, Iranian families, um, you know, some of the other countries as well who are going through similar situations. And they're waiting on this waiver process that doesn't seem to actually be a real thing. Now, I'm looking at this article you sent me dated December 20th of last year and uh, reporting that the mother finally was able to come and was cradling her dying child. Is Abdullah still alive or did he pass away? Now, Abdullah passed away um, very shortly after his mother arrived, um, maybe about a week or so after she arrived. So she did have a few days with him, um, but unfortunately he did pass away soon after. How old was Abdullah when he died? So he had just been two years old about two weeks before his death. So he's about exactly two years old. You know, I'm sure many of our listeners are parents like I am. And to me, one of the most horrible things that anybody can go through is for a parent to lose a child, to have to bury your child. Um, I know that was my grandmother's only complaint at, in her 90s was that my mom predeceased her. I can't imagine the grief of this mother, you know, to have to bury her two-year-old baby boy 
but at least she did get finally to come thanks to your advocacy and and that of your organization and you know the heart of american people who responded to this story and uh and the pressure that was put on you know at least she did get to come and see her son before he died yeah absolutely they got the opportunity to mourn with dignity and then that's that's essential you know important for this american family that's what they are so yeah so What's the status of the travel ban now? And, you know, are there other types of uh, of waiver cases that are going awry? Yeah, so the travel ban was upheld by the Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision in June. Um, so it's still in place. These, there are numerous cases with families being separated just like this. Now, they don't all involve a dying toddler. So, you know, they might not have um, those so, sort of um, emotional lightning, you know, strikes that, that, that hit our hearts immediately, but there are families being separated. There's children separated from their parents, spouses separated. Um, so, yeah, we're seeing this trend quite a bit. Um, and most of these cases, you know, waivers are not granted. So it's still, the Muslim ban is still alive and it's still having the, 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 this really horrible impact on Muslim families, from American families. Now, I thought that um, part of the ethos of the travel ban was to be a temporary situation while new measures were put into place to ensure that people coming from these countries were properly uh, vetted. But is there any evidence that our State Department, that our administration has made any efforts to improve, at least from their perspective, um, the screening of travelers who want to come from these countries? No, not at all. And, you know, there, there's been a lot of pretenses that we were told this ban was based off things like national security, things like um, vetting those coming in. But the realities are that, you know, this case really shows, you know, this is a 22-year-old young mother coming for her American husband, her, her U.S. citizen son, who's dying. And, and, you know, she didn't meet the criteria. So these the things uh, we really need to remember as well is, you know, asylum seekers, refugees, all, all these people have to already go through a really strict vetting process even before this ban was put in place. It wasn't very easy to come from these countries and enter the United States as a refugee. Now, that's not what was even happening in this case. This was actually someone married to a U.S. citizen, so she was coming on a spousal visa. But even in those other cases, there was already on average about two years of vetting that would occur before someone was able to enter the United States. So um, we're not seeing any sort of, you know, safer screening or additional screening. It's really just a policy that's targeting people for their religion, just like the president told us he would do during his election campaign. And that's what we're seeing now come into fruition. It's the policy that he promised, which was a shutdown of Muslims entering the country. So let me make sure I've got this right. Uh, if you're coming on a family visa, and your husband or wife is an American citizen, then normally without this travel ban, you would be able to get a visa pretty easily and come because of your family connection. We'll start there. Yeah, That's exactly. Exactly. Okay. So if a U.S. citizen typically marries someone from a different country, they're able to um, petition for them through a spousal visa, an I-130 petition, for them to come join them in the United sure. States. And it's very common. It happens all the time. And it definitely doesn't take this long. But because of the Muslim ban, right. that's why for a year she was waiting. 
One of the very first things I did out of law school was helping a church member from the Philippines who was an American citizen uh, get her husband over here. She was pregnant and wanted her husband with her. And I wrote, and it was granted. The visa was granted. You know, it was a joy for me as an attorney to do something positive to bring a family together. Um, but what I also heard you saying is that even before the travel ban, people who wanted to come here who, if it was an asylum seeker or, or otherwise, um, didn't have family ties, they already had to go through a two-year vetting process in order to be able to get a visa. Uh, that doesn't sound like a, uh, a security problem to me. Absolutely not. I mean, and that's one of the things that I think people are really confused about. They, maybe before that, people just needed applied for asylum and would just be able to come right in. That wasn't the case. There was, you know, these are people coming from, you know, war-torn countries a lot of times. And so there was very strict processes make sure to, you know, done by the FBI, done by the Department of Homeland Security, different agencies within them to make sure that they were letting in people who passed their vetting process. So that was already in place under the Obama administration. Um, it wasn't just, you know, an open door policy. Anybody who wants to come can enter the United States. It's never been that way. So, so it's important for people to understand that um, a lot of the people who are here or trying to come here have already been vetted and they're just victims of war. They're people who, you know, were victims uh, caught in the middle of a civil war or whatever it may be, and they're safe, they're, they're here just, you know, to have a better life and contribute to our society, and that's really that simple. Well, we're out of time. Our guest today has been my friend and colleague, Saad Swalem, and we've been talking about the problems with the waiver policy with respect to the, the so-called travel ban, the Muslim ban, and a mother who almost did not even get to say goodbye to her dying two-year-old son. It's been a very heart-wrenching story. Son, thank you for being with us on Freedom's Ring today. Thank you, Alan. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rynock. Until next week, let freedom ring.